judge not. As one pastor said, it's the heathen's favorite half verse. It's really the battle cry of our age. In a world of moral relativism, who are you to make any judgment against me? Of course, those who argue in this way are themselves making a judgment. They're judging those who disagree with them. They're judging that those who judge are bad. That's not to be done. But of course, moral relativism is not logical. And so it's, uh, you know, consistency is a little much to ask. Uh, but nevertheless, we do come to this passage where these words are issued by our Lord. And so I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 37. In our study of Luke, we've reached this place. You've maybe had these words thrown at you before, thrown back at you. And so what, what should we make of them? What is this about? What is Jesus saying here? What is a Christian's relation to judgment and to judging. So let's uh, begin by reading in verse 37. Jesus says, he's continuing his sermon on the plain. He says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. <clears throat> Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you who see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So just as we, uh, before we really dive into this, just want to make a few remarks up front. What Jesus is not saying when he says judge not, he's not saying that we are to suspend all forms of judgment. Okay, the context, I think, makes that clear. Plus, that would be, that's, that's impossible. It's impossible to do that. Uh, judgments are made all the time, and they have to be made. Everybody's making judgments at, at some point or another in their day. The mere fact that there is good and bad uh, reveals that judgments are necessary. We must discern right from wrong. Everyone who does that in some form, however they define right and wrong, they're making judgment calls. And of course, we know that this is good. There is such a thing as right and wrong. Uh, there's sin. Uh, there's righteousness. And so it's important that we discern and judge between the two. Judgments handed down in a court of law, these are, this is good. Uh, that's not hereby declared bad by Jesus. Justice is good and it requires judgment, innocent or guilty. To refuse to do that would be a very bad thing. We do not want to live in a society that refuses to make judgments on good and bad, especially in a court of law. There's also many other places in scriptures where we are explicitly told to make judgments. There's actually a lot of places where we're told this. But one that comes to mind, a really obvious one, Jesus in John 7.24 says, Judge with right judgment. 
So clearly there's a case, there's a time and a place where we are to make judgment and to do so with a right judgment. So the question is not if we should make judgment, but how and, and what, on what authority, etc. Moreover, you may have noticed this as we read the passage, but in this very passage, Jesus makes a judgment. You maybe notice that in the middle of verse 42, he says, you hypocrite. Well, that's a judgment. That's a judgment call. Additionally, in this verse, he's also showing his disciples the proper way of dealing with specks that are in other people's eyes, with sin, with faults in other people. He's showing how to do it. Not, he's not outlawing that altogether, but showing how to do it, what our attitude ought to be, what our disposition should be, etc. So, once again, context matters, right, to, to discern what does, is Jesus talking about here. So, in this section, Jesus' words, he's continuing to govern how it is that Christians are, relate, are to relate to other people. So, he's already said, as we saw last week, to love your enemies, uh, to be merciful as your Father is merciful. And so now he's just continuing on to show us how it is that we're to love other people. How do we deal mercifully with others? Now he's, he's showing us that. And so it's really continuing on in a similar vein to what we saw last week. The fact is, the reality is, relating to others well, loving other people, is difficult. It's hard because we are all sinful. We relate, the other people we relate to around us, in this room, outside of this room, in our home, wherever it is, are sinful people. So they're going to sin. Moreover, we're sinful people. So we're going to respond to sin sinfully. We're going to sometimes sin when we're not even provoked to do so. And it's, it can be a very difficult thing. And so Jesus brings us here words that we need to hear. We need to, to hear and listen to and understand. So again, to, to summarize, I think, what, what we find in this passage, which Jesus is teaching, is that Christians relate rightly to others by adopting a posture of grace and humility, especially when making judgments. So we relate rightly to others when we adopt a posture of grace and humility towards other people, particularly and especially when we're making a judgment. So uh, the three points of our outline today are the following. Just give them to you up front. The first, Christians relate rightly to others when we take a gracious and generous approach to others. Verses 37 and 38. Secondly, Christians relate rightly to others when we make Jesus our guide, Christ our, our guide in how we do this. Verses 39 and 40. And then verses 41 and 42. Christians relate rightly to others when we make judgments with humility and with introspection. So that's where we're going. So first off, Christians relate rightly to others when we take a gracious and generous approach to people. So let's read again verse 37 and 38. He says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. <clears throat> so there's four commands here given in these verses. We have judge not, condemn not, and then positively, uh, forgive and give. So the, the Greek word for judge can have various meanings and different nuances to it, just like it does in English. And so the context is what determines what meaning it has. 
So this word can be used to refer to, well, well for example, if I were to say to you that I was in a courtroom and uh, judgment was passed, you would know what I'm talking about, right? An official declaration by a judge that's binding, uh, it's lawful and legal matter. But if I said to you, uh, we were going to drive to the city uh, in the middle of January, but we looked out and judged that the roads weren't good and we shouldn't go. Well, you know that's not an official verdict being passed down, uh, you know, on whether or not we should go. It's just a decision. We just made a decision. It's amoral. We shouldn't go because the roads, we judge the roads too bad. So just like in English, this word, the context determines what it means and what way it's being used. So in this case, it is, in, it is parallel with, it is paired with uh, the word condemn, to not condemn. These two go together. They're an example of uh, synonymous parallelism. So these two words go together to judge, not judge, not condemn. And together, they give us a picture. They give us an understanding of what Jesus is getting at. That is, he's warning against a severe and condemning criticism against others and this tendency to fault-find. So nearly every commentary I read on this uh, described this type of judgment with the word censorious, which I had to look up. Uh, and it basically means severe criticism being severely critical, over-the-top harsh with people. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, the reformer John Calvin writes this about these words. These words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease which appears to be natural to us all. We see how all flatter themselves, and every man passes a severe censor on others. This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment. For there is hardly a person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. So notice what he says here. I think he's right. Uh, this is a common desire to fault find with others, in others. Uh, we may think of gossip perhaps. Wanting to dig in and talk about others and find fault. And there's this sort of sick pleasure that we sometimes take when we do this. So it's this desire to find fault. Uh, to issue a condemnatory verdict on that person. And it's typically done so that the one who is judging feels better about themselves. Right? This is what uh, Stein, another commentator, says. This is gaining a status by negation or by uh, you know, looking better by criticizing other people. Right? We feel better about ourselves when we talk about how bad and ridiculous somebody else is. And so this is, this is not unlike the Pharisees and, and the Pharisee that Jesus tells a story about, who stands up in a temple and prays, and he says, I thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. I do all these wonderful things. I give tithes of everything. I'm not like this horrible person down here. I'm so wonderful. Thank you, God, that I'm like that. That's the attitude. That's the type of thing that, that Jesus is addressing. Sort of put that person down, be harsh and critical to them, and, and, and feel better about myself. So he gives these two, you know, judge not, condemn not, and then he gives two positive commands. He says to forgive and then to give. These also are related terms. To forgive is to pardon one's debt. It, isn't, it doesn't mean ignoring somebody's wrong or ignoring sin against you, but it does mean not dwelling on that. When we are wrong as Christians, we, are, we stand ready to forgive that person. If they repent and come to us and ask forgiveness, 
we are quick to grant it. If they do not repent and don't come to us to confess it, we aren't to dwell on it and become bitter about it and set our mind on it and then desire their destruction and talk about them to others. No, we, we let it go. To give, I take this to be uh, similar to forgive. It's a generous spirit toward others. So when we combine all of these, uh, to these four things together, I understand this to be Jesus saying that we are to take a gracious and generous approach to other people. That's our general disposition. We're not to relate to others with a severely critical and fault-finding attitude and disposition, but rather a gracious one, a generous one. We are not to feel better about ourselves by putting others down. When we're wronged, instead, we forgive. We are to be characterized by generosity, in all ways, with our goods, with our thoughts, with our judgments toward people. Which I think means, among other things, assuming the best of someone's motives when it's unclear. For each of these four commands, there's an outcome described as well. So you will not be judged, he says. You will not be condemned. You will be forgiven. And it will be given to you. These are the outcomes in verse 38, then he says, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. So this is, this is a picture of uh, a setting in a marketplace where one would buy grain. So they'd, they'd get a measure, and then they'd put grain in it. They'd shake it to make sure it fills into all the different corners. The whole, you know, it's getting everywhere. They'd press it down. They'd pack it down to get more in. And then you know, when it overflows, you know you're getting a good measure. It was poured into the lap uh, because what that means is, is uh, they would take the fold of their outer garment and fold it up and they'd pour it into there and that's how they would carry it. So that's what that's talking about. So it's a picture of a more than fair measure being given to you. That's what it's, it's describing. And then this, this proverbial statement, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so this is a picture of God's blessing to his people as they live in the way that Jesus is instructing. So not judging harshly, not condemning on the one hand, and on the other hand, forgiving and, and giving, these are marks of a Christian. Such people have confidence that they are not judged nor condemned by God, but rather are forgiven and are blessed of God. These are so, so just you know, those who bear fruit of repentance, uh, these are, are the ones who have confidence um, that they are, that they belong to the Lord, that they've had a renewed heart. And so we'll talk more about that next week when it talks about the relationship between uh, um, one's fruit, one's actions, one's life, and what is going on in their heart. Uh, that, this connection's made a little more explicitly next week. Remember here, he's describing uh, the character of believers through this sermon. So refusing to forgive another who sins against you is not the description of a Christian. Certainly, a Christian can struggle with this sin, with trying to forgive somebody, but it's not one that's going to ultimately define a Christian. It is something that a believer will know to be at odds with what is true and right. 
When we're struggling to forgive, we, we, we will know and understand that we should be more willing and ready to grant this. And we will feel that struggle within if we're wrestling with the willingness to grant forgiveness. Jesus told a parable of an unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 to illustrate this. One servant, he says, he makes this story up. It's not a real one, but it's a, it's a parable. Uh, a servant begged to have his massive debt canceled from his master. In the equivalent of today's money, I think it's the equivalent of, of even billions of dollars. So Jesus is using this drastically large number uh, for the sake of illustration to make his point. So he, he, gets, he begs to have his billion dollar debt forgiven and the master grants it to him. And then this servant turns around and goes home and he finds one of his servant who owes him the equivalent of today of maybe a few hundred dollars, maybe a couple thousand dollars. Uh, not that much, but especially by comparison. And, and his servant asks him for forgiveness from this debt, to let him off of this debt. He can't pay it. And this man who's just been forgiven billions uh, and had that debt excused, instead uh, of, of excusing this guy, no problem, has him thrown in prison, demands this debt be paid back, uh, shows the man no mercy at all. And of course, you read that and you think that's absurd. How could anyone do that? And the point is, that's, that's describing uh, a Christian, someone who says, I've been forgiven all my sins by the grace of God, and yet who turns around and refuses to forgive somebody who would sin against them. It's, it's absurd, really. It's a crazy thought. This man in the illustration was forgiven so much, and yet he deals ruthlessly with this person who owes him a little bit of money. And so that's, that's like a Christian who's been forgiven so much, and yet we refuse to grant forgiveness to someone else. Though their debt against us pales in comparison to our debt against the Lord, which has been wiped clean. And so forgiving others is a good sign, a good fruit, good evidence that we've comprehended the gospel, that we've glimpsed and grasped uh, something of the extent of our sinfulness and our debt that has been wiped clean by the Lord. So Jesus is showing that Christians are characterized by a gracious and generous approach to others, quick to forgive, slow to judge, avoiding harsh criticism and fault-finding. This is our posture toward others. And it's a posture of charity. Dealing with others charitably. So I don't know where everyone's at this afternoon. But perhaps there's bitterness that you need to let go of. Forgiveness that you need to extend to someone else. Be reminded here that this is a good thing. And that this is a right thing. Such bitterness, if you're holding to that, could be standing in the way of your own joy. And intimacy with God. Perhaps even making you question your salvation. Let it go. Forgive that person. Have you not been forgiven so much? Yes, that person hurt you. Yes, they did something wrong. It's true. But leave it to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to Him. It's not ours. Entrust it to Him. If that person who hurt you was a Christian brother who sinned against you, then that's going to be paid for by Christ. That's forgiven by the Lord Himself. Let go of it. And if that person who hurts you is not a believer, then, and if they never repent of their sin before the Lord, 
That sin's not going to go unpunished. They're going to stand before God and answer for that sin. And even that ought to cause us to have some semblance of compassion or pity on that person. So forgive. Let it go. You've been forgiven so much. Consider the amount that you have been forgiven. Consider the standard of God. Absolute moral perfection. Consider how far short of that you've fallen every single day of your life. Consider that that has been wiped clean and paid for by Christ. Your infinite debt wiped clean. Dwell on that. Think about that. And let that motivate you to turn and, and, and wipe clean anyone's debt against you. Also from this, I think it's important that we guard ourselves against a judgmental, critical spirit. Be careful that you don't cloak this in a righteous garb. So let's not assume right away that all our criticisms and all our judgments are automatically righteous. Okay, be careful. Let's not be hasty either in our judgments to just make them snap and throw them out there. Okay, we, we live in a time when everything is instant. Uh, if you spend any time on social media, uh, you know, an issue happens one minute, the next minute, uh, you know, it's thrown up on social media. The minute after that, you're supposed to have your fully formed opinion and have declared it to the world where you stand on this position. You should have made your uh, judgment already. Uh, he, this, you should be 100% for it or 100% against it. If you don't denounce it, you're for it. If you're not for it, you denounce it. This is, the, this is our world. And if you want to step back and just think about this, read a book about the issue before you make a decision or wait for evidence to come in, uh, then, you know, 700 issues will have come up and gone away before you ever get to that point. But this doesn't mean we should get sucked into that trap of feeling like every minute we need to spout out publicly, you know, some judgment on every, it's you, you have permission to not follow the world into that arena. It's, it's deadly. And a lot of Christians get caught up in it too. And we need to be extra careful. Just beware of critical spirits that we might have and, and, and guard our hearts when it is time to make some sort of a judgment call. Just be, be aware, be careful. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So let us repent of any critical spirit we find. Let us renew a posture of graciousness toward others. This is to be our default and our general disposition toward other people. Number two, Christians relate rightly to others when we make Jesus our guide. We make Christ our guide in these matters. So read with me again verses 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus speaks a parable here. Parables come in different forms. Uh, some are, are stories to illustrate a point. That's how we often think of them. But they can also be uh, more of a proverb, which is what this is. And this, what he says here, uh, it really serves to show the absurdity uh, of, of, of a, a blind man, he's the, a blind man leading another blind man. Right? Can that, does that work, is what, is what this is saying. No, it does not. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes, they will. 
A blind man leading a blind man is not a good idea. And then then he follows that with a statement of warning in verse 40, which I think interprets this proverb for us. To what end is he employing this proverb? And we see here that it's a warning against teachers and which teacher we follow in these matters. A disciple, Jesus tells us, typically becomes like his teacher. This makes sense. And if that teacher happens to be a blind guide, then you're headed for destruction and ruin. And you will likewise bring along anyone who happens to follow you into that same pit. So this then, what Jesus is saying, would appear to be a warning against the Pharisees and against the teachers of that day. They claimed to be guides and teachers to Israel, but in fact they were blind. They were blind guides. And if you follow their lead and become like them, it will be to your ruin. That's what Jesus is warning here. Now the Pharisees, they've got, they got many things wrong that made them blind guides. And, uh, may, I mean, that might be wor- a worthwhile sermon in itself sometime, just because that word gets thrown around a lot too. Uh, you're a Pharisee, but we'll resist the temptation to go there. Uh, So there's lots of issues when it comes to this group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes and those who are teachers. Uh, But within the context here, this is aimed specifically at their tendency to do exactly what Jesus is telling us not to do. Their tendency to be harshly critical and judgmental of others while ignoring their own sinfulness. They're the negative example of what Jesus is saying not to be like. They judge, they condemn, they do not forgive, they are not generous. They pass harsh judgment on other sinners. While they themselves saw no need for repentance. They saw no sin in themselves. Oh, they see the speck in their brother's eye, no problem. But the beam that's in their own eye, they have no idea. And we've already seen this a few times in Luke. One example is in chapter 5, verse 30, where they grumble... They grumble that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. They disdain these folks. They hate these people. But they don't understand their own sinfulness. And as Jesus makes clear, that they don't, they don't understand their own need for a physician. They don't think they're in need of healing. They don't think they need forgiveness from the Lord. And so why are you going to these people, these awful people? And so Jesus is saying that his hearers need to be careful not to follow the lead of the Pharisees, but rather, by implication, they need to follow Him. They need Him, Jesus, to be their guide. He is their teacher. He will not lead them into the pit. Beware who you follow, He's saying. And this may seem basic, but this is true for us. We need to make Jesus and His Word our guide in these matters and how we relate to other people and how and when we're making a judgment call. Christ's likeness is what we need. We want to be like Him. He is our ultimate guide. And He guides us through His Word. He's given us His Word. And so we relate to others as His Word instructs us. What He says is wrong, we affirm is wrong. What He says is right, we affirm is right. What he, how, how he says we are to deal with wrongs against us, that's how we seek to deal with wrongs against us, and so on. 
As we consider Jesus and his example and what he taught, we see that he was very tender towards those who were humbled before him, broken by their sin, who knew their sinfulness before God and confessed it, those who were poor in spirit. The worst of sinners he did not and to this day does not send away. He's quick to forgive repentant sinners. He holds out the promise that if anyone repents, they will be saved and forgiven. And this includes, we see Jesus do this with some of the most unseemly people. Throughout the Gospels, thieves, tax collectors who were scumbags in their day, robbers is what they were, prostitutes, those considered the lowest of society, those who knew this, knew their sinfulness before God, and came in humility to Christ, he did not send away. He extended grace to these people. Consider also how patient he was with his disciples. Just think of some of the things they say and do. And he's very patient with them. He doesn't just, uh, and send them away. He's not overly harsh with them. Consider how patient he was even with unbelieving, hardened sinners as well. Consider that he is the eternal Son of God who's come to earth in the form of a man. And he shows up to Samaria in Luke chapter 9 and they reject him and want nothing to do with him. John and James, they say, well, should we, Lord, should we uh, call down fire from heaven? And we might think, that sounds like a good idea. These ungrateful people, they have this, the, the Son of God in their midst and they want nothing to do with Him. They, they deserve that. And yet Jesus' response to them in that situation is to rebuke them. It's, he rebukes them for it. They're going in with the wrong attitude. They're not mourning this. They're not being gracious toward these people. They're not patient with them. They don't understand that now is not the time for judgment on these people. Now is a time when the gospel is going forth. They want maybe to see these people get roasted by God's judgment. But they end up being rebuked there. Christ's apostles, likewise, were tender towards sinners, towards the Lord's people. Consider Paul's unreal patience with the Corinthian church. If you've read that, you understand there, there's a church with issues. Right? They had problems. And there were people in there uh, who stirred things up and who were smearing his reputation and saying false things about him. And there were Christian brothers and sisters who were believing and going along and, and, and being dragged into some of those sins. And yet he's patient with them. Immensely so, as you read those two letters to that church. Additionally, when Paul preached Christ to pagans, Acts chapter 17 in Athens, he's filled with compassion. He's filled with an earnest desire for them to turn to the Lord, to turn away from their idols. And so he proclaims this truth to them. He calls them to turn to the Lord. This was a gracious demeanor for Paul. Even as he called out sin, which leads to an important point. As we consider Christ and His Word and letting Him be our guide, let's note that having a gracious demeanor towards people, being Christ-like in this way, 
doesn't mean avoiding all judgment or all difficult topics. Christ, as we've already noted, had many conflicts with the Pharisees. And again, there's many things they had wrong, but these, these men, they had corrupted the truth of God's word. They were the teachers during this time, the respected people, considered holy by most. By most, they had all these standards they were trying to attain. And here is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the very thing that the entire Old Testament points toward. And he shows up, and there he is. And what do they do? They despise him. They want to kill him. These were not just men who had a few little things wrong. They were completely off. A lot of people will say, oh, if you're religious or you have some standard, uh, then you're a Pharisee. Right away, they'll throw that charge out there. But that's not, Jesus is not upset with them because they have standards. He's not upset with them because they're religious. He's upset with them because they're wrong. Their understanding of God is wrong. Their teaching of the Bible is wrong. The way they're trying to keep the commandments is wrong. Everything they've got going on is wrong, and yet they stand up and they claim to teach the, you know, authoritatively the Word of God. And so this is problematic. And so Jesus, you know, and they're even confronting Him. And so uh, Jesus has some harsh interactions with them. The apostles, likewise, at times have a harsh tone with some harsh words for those who are seeking to corrupt the gospel. Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles, and others in Scripture also preached of man's sinfulness and his alienation from God. They warned of coming judgment at the end, and they pleaded with men to turn from their sin and look to Christ for forgiveness. They preached Christ as the exclusive and only way to be reconciled with God the Father. They preached against false gods and idols. They upheld the law of God and the standards of God set forth in His Word. They didn't capitulate to the spirit of the age. This is consistent with Christ-likeness. And these things have always been despised by man. It's not just modern man that takes offense at the exclusivity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the resurrection even in the New Testament times, men tripped in over this and were offended by these things. Christ Jesus himself was nailed to the cross. And so having a gracious, Christ-like posture toward others doesn't mean that we never speak of difficult things. It doesn't mean that we never speak of sin. On the contrary, we must speak the truth of the gospel, which includes the fact that mankind is sinful is alienated from God and is in danger of God's judgment and in need of repentance and forgiveness from God. Jesus taught this, and again, he was hated for it, despised for it. So if we do this and we get labeled as judgmental for this, we'll know this is not what Jesus was condemning. So we must be careful to let Jesus in his word be our guide to how it is we are to relate to others. And perhaps you feel the weight of the world's claim that you know, mentioning sin, holding to the standards set forth in the Bible, is judgmental. 
Maybe you feel that weight and that is, is heavy to you. Perhaps you feel like maybe caving into that. This is not what Jesus is condemning. And so look to your better guide, Christ. Follow him. Beware of blind guides. Perhaps, on the other hand, you're a bit the other way. You're harsh with people. Perhaps you're unkind when you speak of sin. Feeling that your commission from God, the fact that you know what his word says, puts you on some higher plane than the sinner you're talking with. and gives you permission in some way to talk down to them. Well, this isn't what Christ and his apostles modeled either. I would imagine nobody here consciously thinks that way. Perhaps that slips in. This isn't what Christ modeled. Again, look to your better guide, Christ. Perhaps you think it's unkind to talk of sin. It's unkind, it's mean to warn of hell or God's coming judgment in the end. Again, look to your better guide, to Christ and what he has laid out in Scripture. Thirdly, Christians relate rightly to others when we make judgments with humility and introspection. So, as we let Jesus be our guide, let's look at what he tells us here in verses 41 and 42. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is out that is in your brother's eye. So I think in these verses what Jesus primarily has in mind is how brothers and sisters, that is Christians, are to deal with sins and faults that we find in our other brothers and sisters, other Christians. But I also think that this is instructive for all of our dealings with other people, wherever we might find ourselves. So here Jesus uses this exaggeration uh, to make his point. So he he talks about a log being in somebody's eye. Uh, The word for log is a beam. Uh, like a, a, a carpenter's beam, the main beam of a building. So I remember once helping put a large beam in someone's ceiling as they were doing renovations to keep the ceiling from collapsing. And uh, there were several of us who helped put that beam in because it's rather large. Uh, and so that's the picture, this massive beam out of somebody's eye, which is kind of seems ridiculous. And it's meant to be absurd to make, again, drive the illustration home. And then that's being compared to dealing with a piece of sawdust in in somebody else's eyes. And so he's making an important point with this. And he's saying, before we deal with the fault that we might see in another, we first must be dealing with sin in our own lives. It's aimed at those who find fault in others, pointing out their sins while not dealing with their own. And it's hypocritical. So he says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. (laughs) That is, deal with your own sin. Acknowledge your own sin. Confess that sin to God. Be battling with it. Be humbled by it. Deal with the log in your own eye. An implication here, too, I think, is that our own sins are many. This log illustrates that. This beam illustrates it. And when we grasp, again... That, that our sins are many, it fundamentally changes how we approach other people, particularly 
when they're at fault in something or have sinned. It changes the way we deal with people. By comparison, their issue is like a speck. I mean, if we are honest, we'll find so much more horror in our own souls when we look at it honestly than when we look at anyone else and see someone else's sin. Again, when we consider the standards of God, that lust is as adultery in God's eyes, that hatred, despising of somebody, is as murder to God. When we consider that His standard is perfection, moral perfection according to His commands and and statutes, and we see how far short we've fallen, we will understand, indeed, that was a beam, and is a beam. And by comparison, the sin that I might see in you, or that you might, I don't know everything that goes on in your heart, but that one thing you did against me really does, it it pales in comparison to the debt that I've been forgiven. And so it's hypocritical for us to go to a brother or go to a sister up on our high horse with a harsh and condemnatory attitude when we ourselves are daily debtors to God's grace and mercy. Again, I mentioned the parable of the wicked servant earlier. It illustrates this. Notice, though, that Jesus here doesn't say this. He doesn't give this example uh, to stop us from going to our brother. It's not saying, he's not saying don't deal with the speck. So we shouldn't conclude from this, well, You know, I have a log in my eye. I have a lot of sin in my own life and difficulty, so I'm not allowed to or I shouldn't go talk to my brother about this sin uh, in their life or the sin they committed against me. Uh, After all, I'm sinful, so I'll just, you know, we'll just let it go. That's not what this is saying. Notice in verse 42, Jesus says that after we've dealt with the log in our eye, he says, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The speck still matters. So I remember several years ago, Clay uh, came to church, and his eye was all swollen, and he was in excruciating pain. Do you remember that? Yeah. And, uh, and so he left and went to the hospital, and it turned out to be a tiny piece of metal, right? A little speck of metal in your eye. That's my recollection. Does that sound right? You've forgotten already. It was ice. Okay, not even even metal ice. A little piece of ice in his eye, uh, and clearly you want to get rid of that, right? That's not good. That's not helpful. Dust in the eye speck is still still a problem. It still matters. So he went to the hospital and got it removed. It's a good thing he did. Addressing sin in another person is not wrong. It's a good thing. Helping another person fight their sin, another believer fight their sin, is good. Helping us see and understand our faults. Going to another who has offended you to talk about what they did. These things are good. These things are right. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Psalm 141.5, David says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. 
Understanding that when someone comes with my best interest in mind to help me see some fault in me is a good thing in the end. And so we should desire this for ourselves and we should desire to help other people in this way. But we are to keep this in proper perspective and to not go about this in some hypocritical fashion as though we're above our brothers and sisters, as if we ourselves have no problem. And we're not to go looking for specks on some fault-finding mission. Nor do we deal with others, you know, at the exclusion of working through our own sins. So we're not to go in with harshness or critical or arrogant spirit. We're to make these kinds of judgments with humility and with introspection, examining our own selves. There's a number of applications and implications uh, from this. The first I'd say for us is this. Uh, deal with your own sin. Be interested in confessing your own sin. Growing in holiness yourself. Make this your priority. And, and then when it's time to address something you see in somebody else, examine your own life first before you go have that conversation. Let your own need for God's grace remind you to then go and deal gently with your brother or sister. Secondly, while it's not explicit, I think this text encourages us to assume the best of one another and of one another's motives when we do wrong. Everybody tends to think, we all tend to think that we're perfectly objective. You know, what we see, we see. You know, we make conclusions and we're pretty certain we're right. I saw that, I understood it this way, I heard those words, I, and we assume we are correct in these things. But we, we have to understand that we are not infallible in what we perceive and what we hear, and that we may very well be mistaken. We, we, we must have that humility. When someone offends us, we tend to assume the worst of them. So I think there's a tendency then to just to, to think, they did that because they hate me. They did that because they are a jerk. They did that because they're arrogant. That proves it. They're arrogant. They think they're better than everybody else. These are the kinds of things, our, this is what our brains do. Now it's possible, you're right, that could be true. But it could be, perhaps, they were having a really bad day. And in a weak moment, they responded in a way that wasn't right. It doesn't excuse what they did, but that's very different than they're a hateful person who's out to get you. Right? That's a very different thing. A very different motivation. And it's not always easy to know which one it is. If we just don't ask, if we just make an assumption. So we need to be careful. It could also be that you simply misinterpreted what was said. They intended something other than what you took it as. This happens all the time. And if you go in to correct somebody in an instant like that, and you come in flailing, assuming the worst, it's going to be awfully difficult to reconcile with that person. If you lead out with this person being a jerk, and if that's your assumption going into it, it's going to be awfully difficult for that conversation to end well. More, than like, more likely, 
if you assume that of their motives and assume these things, you're probably just not going to even think it's worth it to go talk to them. Ah, they're not going to listen. Arrogant, jerk, not going to listen. You know, you've already judged, you've passed judgment on this person, why they did it. Uh, you've decided. We are not infallible. We need humility in these moments. Instead, you could go to somebody and say, you said this, this is how I received it. If you were assuming the best of that person, we would say, there's got to be another explanation. What, what, you know, what did you mean by that? And then, honestly, 99% of the time, oh, that's not at all how I meant it. And you, apologies, and on we go with life, and everyone's good. How much pain would be removed if we learned to assume the best of others and deal with things that way? We, Jesus calls us to humility with one another. This is so important. This is so crucial for us. Third thing. Notice that motives and attitudes do matter as we address sins in our brothers and sisters. That is, the way we do it matters. It's hypocritical to address the speck without regard for our own sin. We've seen that. Without recognition for our own sinfulness. Addressing the speck is not the problem, but the hypocrisy is. Right? So the way we do it does matter. The ends, in this case, addressing the speck in someone's eyes, do not justify the means. This case of doing it arrogantly or harshly or without regard for our own sin. Right? The way we, we do this matters to the Lord. And he's laying this out for us. We are to do this in humility. Last, and I just want to add this, that any judgment we make is really in light of what God's word says. Right? We're, not, we're not saying that something is wrong or right because we have some special authority to decide ourselves. Rather, we're simply trying to pronounce what God says about an issue. Right? So, so whether it's in evangelism, if we go to somebody and we're trying to help them see their sin, we're, we're trying to help them understand and see God's standard, how God views them, how God is going to judge them. This is not first and foremost my condemnation of you. This is what God's saying. I'm the messenger here on behalf of God. Or if we go to another brother or sister about an issue, the standard again is God's word. Something is not wrong or sinful simply because I think it's so. It is sin if it is objectively wrong by God's standards. And so let us not get trapped into thinking that our feeling or our sense is the authority. Well, I just felt this. Okay, well, that doesn't mean that that was sinful of that person. Well, I just felt like you, okay, well, maybe that means they're sinful, but maybe not, right? Better go help them see what specifically they did that you think is, is the wrong done. Right? The standard here is God's word. The authority is God's word, not us. Again, all of this comes out of humility in this. All of this is really commentary on how it is we are to love one another. 
and our general posture toward others is to be one of grace and humility, especially when, when making judgments and dealing with sins and faults in others. Certainly, there are times to be firm, even times when rebuke is necessary and that might be stinging. We know we are to proclaim the sharp corners of the gospel, that is, sin, future judgment, things that tend to hurt. We know it's good to rebuke one another and help each other as we fall into sin, but we do not and we dare not lose sight of the fact that we ourselves are but sinners deserving of God's wrath who have been forgiven much and have received an infinite amount of grace for our own sins. And so because of that and in light of that, we forgive. We, we can deal gently with others. We can make judgments about right and wrong, but we do so in a, in a humble state out of concern for others. And so may the Father make us these types of people as he builds us up into the image of his Son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day. Thank you for your word. And God, we do acknowledge now that we are debtors to your mercy and grace daily. God, I pray that that would drive us to greater love for you and greater love for others and greater patience with others and greater willingness to forgive and, and, and softer in our posture towards others, in our words with others. Father, we all need this as we relate in our marriages, as we relate together in this church, as we step outside of these walls. Father, help us to love and cling to the truth of your word, including all the difficult aspects, and help us to, when we share these things with others, to do so in love and to do so patiently and to do so in humility. May we be beggars who are trying to help other beggars find food. God, I pray that you would work this attitude in us and that you do it for your own glory and your own namesake. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.